0: The beauty of this is saliva, the virus is able to survive in that saliva seven or eight days. And actually, at room temperature, it still survives.
1: Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID 19 and getting back to school. I'm Emily Donahue. The pandemic certainly is top of mind as schools reopen across the country. Every day we learn new things about this virus, and that keeps plans for returning back to work and back to school very fluid. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Bill Lang and Fred Southwick to discuss the evolving information about the virus and emerging best practices for reopening schools and businesses safely. Let's listen in.
2: So we're very honored, uh, obviously, Bill and Fred, to have this opportunity to speak with you. And we're going to make this um, a weekly podcast, let's call it uh, COVID Corner, for alliteration purposes. And the purpose here for our audience is to do a recap of what we've learned over the last week and what we can expect to learn during the coming week. And uh, the one certain truism about what we've been going through is that we are learning things on a daily basis about the disease, about possible means of testing, possible vaccines, and there certainly is a lot of disinformation out there. So we're going to try to separate fact from fiction, and I know you guys have been in the trenches, so thank you again for doing this. Uh, Bill, Fred, why don't we start, within the last week, plus, uh, there was an announcement of the development of a saliva test, which uh, at least holds out the promise of a test that's less intrusive, a fraction of the cost, and the ability to turn results around in 24 hours, which has been a significant issue. Could we get some of your perspectives on uh, the saliva testing and
3: Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead. I'll I'll start on my thoughts. And um, so the the big thing with the saliva testing is the ease at administering the saliva testing. It's can be self basically self administered. You can spit into a a tube. Um, the tube is sealed, It's sent. It's sent for the testing process, and it's not a. Uh, process that requires the centralized development of specialized uh, supplies or reagents. It uses existing uh, commonly available supplies and reagents. It is still a complex test that has to be done in a laboratory, but the thought is that the, the test can be administered much more broadly and much more efficiently. The accuracy is still somewhat in question, I would say it is in question, it's not as accurate. And when I say accurate, I mean, does a does a negative test truly mean that you do not have disease? That's the big question with it. It is not as accurate as the uh, professionally obtained samples that are then run through a the PCR, the polymerase chain reaction tests. But if you want to do quick tests and get quick results and take quick action, and maybe you have to do you test multiple times, but doing these these quick 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 uh, tests that are reasonably accurate may be more beneficial in being able to uh, fight this by doing instituting isolation and quarantine much more rapidly.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with Bill. The 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 saliva test, which was developed at Yale, actually I've been following it for about three months, and I was pleased to see the FDA did approve its. It's a a method of sampling. You're still using the same PCR reaction. You still have to do between 25 and 35 reactions back and forth, temperature changes, to get the product and determine whether it's positive or negative. So the actual PCR itself takes the same amount of time. However, the processing is much simpler. The beauty of this is saliva... The virus is able to survive in that saliva without any uh, other media or any requirement for any preservative. Um, It can last, uh, they've actually gone out seven or eight days in the saliva. And actually at room temperature, it still survives. So you don't have to necessarily refrigerate it. What happens is the virus stays intact. In other words, it's not damaged or lysed in the saliva.
2: So, obviously, uh, another tool in the toolkit, and because it's less intrusive and also a fraction of the cost.
0: Yeah, and um, one other debate yeah. is the sensitivity of the test. And the problem is there is no gold standard here. In other words, we don't know what is the ideal. Now, nasopharyngeal, we know that nasopharyngeal PCR can stay positive for 20 to 60 days in some cases. And what we also know is that the uh, positive PCR is because of RNA from dead virus. After nine days, there's no one's been able to culture the virus past nine days of symptom with, with the nasopharyngeal swab. The saliva, on the other hand, that's the way it's spread. So when the virus is in the saliva, that, uh, that correlates very nicely with infectiousness, whether you spread the infection. And so uh, you won't have quite as high a positivity rate. Uh, although early on, their studies from Yale showed virtually the same sensitivity. So in comparison to nasopharyngeal, it's fewer positive tests. But are those positive tests important? I would submit that in a way they're po- false positives because they aren't. Do they are not a measure of live virus. Good
2: to know. Let me switch. To school openings. And I think the in, in a very sort of plain English, pragmatic way, there are a number of people here on our podcast who would like to know what they should be thinking about and what precautions their schools should be taking and what should they be thinking about in terms of their children returning to school, whether they go back physically, whether they return virtually, whether they return sort of on a half and half schedule, you know, just sort of how parents should be thinking about this and what parents should be expecting from the schools in terms of the precautions. Bill, why don't I start with you? But Fred, I know you've been right at the epicenter of this in Florida and elsewhere.
3: Well, I think an important consideration is that you can't look at every age group within the school groups the same. Elementary students are very different, of course, than college students, and then high school somewhere in between. And then you've also got to remember that it's not the the risk that we're concerned about is not as much the risk to the, the kids, and I'm, I'm going to throw call them all kids, even the college students. We're not talking about the risk to the kids as much as we're talking about the risk to the staff and faculty and the risk to families, the risk to bringing disease home uh, because you're in this environment where it's, it may be easier to transmit the disease. So there's different considerations. It is not one size fits all at, at all by age group. The little, The smaller kids... They're easier, on one hand, easier to control, to tell them what they're going to do, but little kids, elementary school kids, are on top of each other all day long, and there's only so much that a teacher can do to keep them apart. College kids, um, I think the experience at North Carolina and at Notre Dame is very interesting. In both cases, the administrations told said that the kids were doing very well in terms of wearing masks, maintaining social distancing, going to the classes, uh, staying apart from, from each other, staying apart from the faculty, and things looked good until they had the weekend, until they had evenings, and they're in parties and in dorms, and they're not following the directions. That's where the problem in, in the colleges occur, is is in the after hours functions, where they're going to do exactly the kinds of things that put them at risk for for exchanging infection between each other. And, and then, as I said, the high school is somewhere in between. They're probably more controlled than the, the colleges are, and that they are going home, and parents are telling them they need to be careful and are, have a little bit more control over their social life, but they're still getting out and doing things. Uh, the, the little kids, well, you know, they're going to be exchanging at school, not probably not as much after hours because parents have much more control. So we need to think of each group independently. And then it all depends also on the risk factors of the environment that they're in. Um, you know, if you're if you're in an area like New York State, New England in general, where the the risk of the, the prevalence of disease is so much lower than you are in a state like Texas or Florida, although Florida is getting much better, where the, the prevalence of disease is so much higher. And then colleges, where you mix people from all over the country, that's setting up another
0: risk factor in and of itself. Okay.
2: And Fred, I know you've been doing precisely that. What's your yeah. guidance for parents?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think I, I completely agree with uh, Bill on both those things. The age and and age ages two to ten there's a little debate, but overall when you look at the epidemiology, it appears they are less infectious and also they have very little in the way of symptoms uh, and actually, the CDC just released guidance that say daycare centers are relatively safe from age ten to thirteen is sort of we were I sure over age thirteen and college the same as adults. They, they spread it equally. And the problem with high school students and college students is they don't have much in the way of symptoms and can just push through this and not even notice it. And yet they have high concentrations of the virus in their nasopharynx and in their saliva. And and the community level is exactly right. You, if you're at the red zone, over 25 per 100,000, you really shouldn't open the schools. Uh, and the orange zone, um Possibly it's a little risky. And then um, Bill alluded to the culture issues and um, also the political area, the politicians in your area, um, what they're feeling. If they're ignoring masks and saying masks aren't important, that's an area that where it's going to be more dangerous to open the schools because the virus, we know absolutely without question that the virus is spread by droplets small droplets as we speak, even as we breathe, and as if we sneeze or cough. So if you wear a mask, you actually dramatically reduce the spread of the infection. Now, other considerations are the actual physical plant. If you have a school with very small rooms that are poorly ventilated and you don't have windows where you can open up and let fresh air in, uh, the problem is when children are together or young people are together in a small space, uh, there's a buildup of aerosol, the sm- very fine droplets that we produce some of all the time and we speak and when we breathe. Uh, they build up in these rooms, and then um, even if you're six feet from each other, you can breathe these in, and they can be very dangerous. So uh, you really want a high-ventilation Average is three volumes per hour. You want six to eight volumes per hour, and the the air should come from uh, outside. It should be fresh air. One of the big concerns is the concept of the super spreader. Uh, We think that two days before the onset of infection and for four days after the onset of symptoms, the viral counts in the nasopharynx and in the saliva are extremely high, And so if that person happens to be around a lot of other people, they could spread it to 10, 15, 20 people. So the efficiency of spread goes way, way up during that period. Now, after that period, the degree of spread is very, very low. So it's not an even, not everyone that's infected is going to spread it uh, easily. It depends on where you are in the infection, how likely you are to spread it to others.
2: Both of you have touched upon a couple of points. I w I wanna try to synthesize this. So number one, age does matter. Two, geography does matter, and knowing the data within your state, your community. You talk about super spreaders, Fred. Obviously I think parents as well as, you know, employers and employees wanna know if you know, if somebody is not well and whether that person has been introduced into the environment. Obviously, air circulation matters, masks and having people wear masks matter. Give us the pragmatic checklist of what a facility should have, whether it's an office or a school, as people come back in.
3: David, one of the critical things is education. It's teaching the students, teaching parents to keep kids out if they're sick. And that's with the whole idea of screening, having a program for screening to keep these kids out of school if they're sick. That is going to be one of the most important things. But as Fred said, people are infectious typically about two days before they're sick and kids don't always show any symptoms. So that makes it difficult. It doesn't mean we shouldn't screen. It doesn't mean we uh, temperature checks are a, a debatable item. But temperature checks are one thing that's objective. So if you've got people who are coming into, whether it's school or coming into work, because they don't feel like they have an option, even though they may be trying to fight through a, an illness. Now, if you're doing temperature checks, it's it's setting a, a kind of a final line of defense. It may be better than nothing. So doing those kinds of things, in addition to the things we've already talked about, in addition to setting up... Um, Enough physical distancing in the classroom, in addition to keeping the population density in the classroom down. It means you're not going to have 40 kids in a small classroom, and that may be difficult for some school districts to achieve. And increase uh, the hand hygiene uh, through hand washing, use of hand sanitizers. Those are going to be the critical things that that schools and the parents can do to make sure this is all uh, this is as safe as possible.
0: One one of the things that I think is a concept that a lot of people are, are a lot of um, schools are thinking about or creating a pod a, a group that stays together the entire day and that way um, so rather than everybody changing classes and intermixing uh, you would keep a group together and maybe the the teacher would come in with different subjects rather than the students go to the teacher. That way, there's not a mixing of multiple populations. So I think if you can keep them in discrete groups that stay together the entire time, uh, that is a really important way to control uh, the spread of infection and allow you to get things under control. With regards to fever, I I couldn't agree more with Bill that the fever is potentially very helpful. And I just looked up the Cochrane uh, reports, which is a review of all the literature on COVID-19 to determine how helpful is fever. It turns out if you actually carefully monitor fever, and it just can't be at the door, you monitor it at home, uh, the sensitivity for infection is around 90 to 95 percent. It's better than PCR, So, but the problem is not specific. There are other causes of fever. But as far as being an alarm and alert, you shouldn't come in to a closed environment to a a large group if you have a fever at home. So I think checking your temperature twice a day, very simple to do, it's a very helpful way to monitor. And I think we're not using this enough at home. And I think that's where it could be very, very beneficial.
2: It's a great takeaway. Thank you, Fred. Thanks, Bill. Um, In the remaining minutes we have, You guys have put together sort of an interesting formula for how to look at the data that's coming in. And um, I will just say for the audience, you know, among the most important things is to make sure you're going to the reliable sites and not relying on some of the information that's probably pushed to you or, you know, in some form, but everything from Johns Hopkins to CDC to Stanford to other leading academic institutions, very, very helpful. Uh, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker also put out very helpful guides, maps and newsletters, and they're doing that as part of the public service. Uh, Bill, Fred, would you share very quickly sort of the key to understanding the data in an individual's area and how to think about sort of the trend, whether it's an enemy or a friend?
3: What I've been using is and trying to keep it simple for the, the organizations, uh, whether it's companies or individuals or schools that I've been working with is one, ten, twenty five. And what the cause those are numbers you can remember, one, ten, and twenty five. Easy to remember. And what that is, is the rate per hundred thousand of new diagnoses so it's a fairly simple and it's actually a rate that's published in many places the washington post every day publishes the updated rate per 100,000 per day averaged over well they put it every day but then they also publish the average over the last 7 days and what those numbers mean is if you're at around 1 or less that's almost almost non-existent transmission it's not it's not zero but it's it's at the area where it's it's bordering on the negligible I think people still want to be careful because you can easily jump up above that but it's almost at negligible levels of transmission. between 1 and 10 well that's the area where it's it's in the community it's out there. so you want to use protection you want to do things that you can make yourself safe and, and make others safe from you but it's it's at low levels in the community. Then between 10 and 25 is considered controlled community transmission. It's out there. It is being transmitted in the community, but it's controlled. People are doing the things that they need to do. They're wearing the masks. They're focusing on social distancing. They're using hand hygiene. They're doing the things that they can do to keep the, the, the rates down in their community and then at 25 and greater it's uncontrolled it's it's out of control in those areas. As we look at the United States today there we only fortunately have very very few areas that are in the uncontrolled region. And we have a growing number that are either in the the sporadic, the near negligible or in the very limited community transmission. That's that's a good thing. Um, now, can we stay there as we go into the fall? That's going to be the million-dollar question. But those are easy numbers to find. You can find them at the state level from Washington Post. You can typically find them at the county level if you Google the county name COVID data. But just remember one ten twenty-five.
0: Uh, that's a great mnemonic. I really like that. Very easy to remember, and it's exactly what you need to be concerned about. Now, David, I think your question alluded to another thing, another problem. Um, on social media, there are all kinds of information that comes up and people believe it uh, and become very frightened over a certain data that's coming out, questioning uh, some of the facts. And so the issue comes up, how can I know whether something someone is sharing is real or is it disinformation? Unfortunately, when we look, it's probably pretty close to 50-50, maybe a little bit in favor of disinformation. In other words, half of what you pick up on the social media is, is blatantly wrong. And so what I recommend you do is you check the source. Where did this come from? If you can't figure out where the source is, you should dismiss it. We all are frightened by this virus. And it's very important not to spread them and not to take this in because one of the things that I pointed out to, to a number of lay people is that when you have good information that you can act on, it's a protection. It's like a protective bubble. When you start listening to things that are not correct, you may act in an improper way and you lose that protective bubble and you are at higher risk for developing and for contracting the infection so it's very important to be critical about where the source is and to be sure that it's accurate and that's why uh, the my experiences with the washington post with the new york times um, they are very reputable and very accurate and one of the things i really like about both of them You can link, if you do it online, you can link to the primary source. You can actually hit, they'll put the statement, there'll be a little blue line. You hit it, and it'll go to the actual article. And those articles are in peer-reviewed scientific journals, like the New England Journal, like Lancet, JAMA. The other thing that people are concerned about, well, they said this yesterday, and today they're saying something else. They were lying. That is changing. We're getting a better understanding We're real-time applying the scientific method and continually changing and adapting based on the new information that we get.
2: So, Fred, a reminder that uh, this is not just a biological issue. There's an informational war that's also going on uh, concerning this virus. And some people are motivated by profit, some by mischief. What should we be thinking about in the week ahead?
3: Well, David, I'd just like to go back to what you just said. I think that one of the for organizations, and that's what I've been doing for most of this, is trying to advise organizations in how to react. And I think one of the most useful things that they can do for their people is to develop a mechanism for getting out this trusted data to their employees. Otherwise, employees, students, what have you, they're going to be going to the Internet. And they're going to be looking at what is sensationalized. And you've got to remember, if it bleeds, it leads. That's not always the accurate data. It's the data that gets captures the most eyes. So make sure that as at the organizational level, you develop these trusted sources.
0: The key is getting the scientifically based information. And what is the science? What happens when you're a scientist? You generate hypothesis, then you test it. That's how the many medications that have been developed throughout the world were developed based on that approach. We all have to be open-minded, we have to be flexible, and we need to listen to the scientists. And by scientists, I recommend epidemiologists, infectious disease specialists, and microbiologists. They all are deeply understand the issues.
2: Okay, so these are great points. A reminder, this is not a static disease we're learning something new every day every week next week's uh, podcast will focus on prospects for a vaccine and what that actually means so i want to thank bill you and fred for not just the podcast but your continued work and keeping your ear to the ground to understand what's actually going on what people are thinking about what they're worried about and what can be most helpful and pragmatic so thank you both
0: thank you thank
3: you david
1: Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can see how RAIN is helping clients during the coronavirus crisis and sign up to become a member of the RAIN Network at rainnetwork.com slash join. Member benefits include access to leading experts on safety, cyber, security, health, and geopolitics, as well as a daily newsletter keeping you up to date. Join today at rainnetwork.com slash join. That's rainnetwork.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.